Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's great to be with you all. Um, I bring you greetings from everyone at Living Hope Church. And just know that everyone there loves you and is so thankful for you at Pretoria West Bible Church, even if you've never met uh, or been to Living Hope Church. Uh, just know that we love and care for you as a church family. So I bring you greetings from everyone there. And it's just a joy to be with you this Sunday morning. And even just as we gather on Sunday morning to know that what we're doing is not unique. Uh, it's very ordinary, in fact, but it's God's design for the gospel to advance. It's by churches meeting, gathering together, like they did in the early church in the book of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to communion, and to prayer. And so it's just encouraging for us, even as we gather this morning, to think this is what believers have been doing for thousands of years now. Gathering together, worshiping the Lord, singing praise to Him, coming to Him in prayer, and opening God's word and hearing from it. And that's the same whether we're in the U.S. or in Spain or in South Africa, whether we're in Hatfield or here in Pretoria West. So I'm thankful that we can do that this morning. And as we begin, I want to begin uh, by sharing with you a little bit about World War II. I don't know, I'm not a huge history person, but I've read a little bit about World War II. And if you know about what happened during World War II, you would know that there was an intense hatred between the Japanese and the Americans during this war. There was an intense hatred that soldiers on either side of this war that were fighting against each other had for one another. And they viewed the other person as dogs, as creatures who did not deserve to live. They were harsh and cruel towards one another whenever they had the chance. And I read a story about a man named Jacob DeShazer was his man. He was an American man in the Air Force. He was flying missions over the Pacific. And he had this type of attitude towards the Japanese. He wanted to kill them. He wanted to destroy their cities. And he did not care about the cost. One time he was flying in a bomber over towards Japan and his, his plane crashed and his entire crew was captured. They survived the crash, but they ended up in prison. Four of them were executed immediately, and the rest of the men were in a prisoner of war camp for over three years. And in this camp, they experienced starvation and torture and abuse. Less than one-third, one out of three of the men who went into this camp survived until the end of the war. They were forced to work. They were given just moldy bread to eat. And they slept in overcrowded and dark and filthy prison cells. And this was an extremely dark place. You can imagine. This is a place filled with very little hope, filled with violence and cruelty. But in this dark place, one of the other prisoners that was in prison with Jacob was a Christian. And Jacob was drawn to this man because of his simple trust in the Lord. This man had hope in this dark place. And this man actually ended up dying in the prison because of his treatment there, because of sickness. But he had a Bible that he gave to Jacob before he died. And Jacob read the word of God and the Lord opened his eyes, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see his sin and his need for a savior and to receive forgiveness by the blood of Christ. This is pretty amazing. So this man, Jacob, in prison, he said, God gave me grace to confess my sins to him, and he forgave me all my sins and saved me for Jesus' sake. 
Suddenly, I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes, and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten me, treated me so cruelly, I found that my bitter hatred for them was changed to loving pity. His heart, which had been filled with violence and anger towards his captors, was transformed by the gospel. God had taken away his heart of stone and given him a heart of flesh. And the Lord preserved him, and he survived until the end of the war. And after the war, the Lord continued to grow in his heart a desire for the lost. So he actually ended up going back as a missionary to the island of Japan. And he lived there for 30 years, preaching the gospel of hope and reconciliation to the Japanese people. So can you imagine having such a sacrificial love to give 30 years of your life to the same kind of people who tortured and imprisoned and killed many of your closest friends. And during his time of ministry, one of the men who heard him preach was a man named Mitsuo Fuchida. This had been one of the commanding officers in the Japanese Navy. And it was his orders that had carried out the attack on Pearl Harbor that had started the conflict between these two armies. These were two men that would have hated each other during the war. They would have killed one another without hesitation. But God used the testimony of this man Jacob to save Mr. Fushida as he preached the gospel of Christ. So these were two men who would have hated one another. They would have carried out acts of violence against one another if they had had the chance, but they embraced as brothers in Christ. Because of the forgiveness that they had received through the gospel, they could show grace and mercy to one another. That's what we're going to talk about today, is this incredible act of forgiveness the topic of forgiveness. So if you, I want to ask you today, have you ever struggled to forgive someone? I know I have. And sometimes stories like these, it can be encouraging, incredible to hear, but we can think, this seems impossible. How could I forgive someone like this? And I know for many of you, you've likely experienced very deep and real and serious hurt. You've been sinned against in terrible ways. You might know what it's like to be hurt, or robbed, or beaten, or taken advantage of. How can we freely offer forgiveness when terrible and tragic sins like this are committed against us? What about when the same people, they sin against you over and over again in the same ways? Is it really possible to forgive like this? Before we open to our passage, let's bow and pray one more time before we open the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be gathered here as your people. God, we are so thankful for your design for the church. We know that you love the church. The church is the body of Christ. God, we're thankful that you have not left us here alone, without direction or without instruction, but you've given us your word. God, your word is so precious to us. Help us to walk day by day as believers, not by our own wisdom, not by our own strength, but by looking to you as our God. We pray now as we open your word, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would work in and through your word to convict us of sin, to encourage us in our walk with you, to equip us for all that we need for life and godliness. God, we do pray that you would grant us a true and deep understanding of forgiveness. Help us to clearly see from Scripture today how we, what we as believers have been forgiven and fill us with the desire to overflow in forgiveness towards others. 
Pray that you'd help me to speak clearly this morning. Help me to guard my heart and my words from error. Help me to faithfully teach the trueness in this passage that we're looking at today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. You can turn to Matthew chapter 18. I'm not going to look at the whole chapter, um, but we're going to be looking, beginning in chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 21. This passage that we're looking at today, it comes at the end. This is one of the most well-known chapters on the topic of forgiveness in the whole Bible. In this chapter, Jesus begins by teaching on having humility and a childlike faith. And the passage directly leading up to this one is where Jesus was teaching his disciples on how to respond if their brother in Christ sins against them. So he's instructed them to go and to tell a brother his fault and to rejoice if he repents because you have gained your brother. Then here in verse 21, we see Peter come to the Lord with a question. So you can look down there, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. We see Peter come to the Lord with the question. He comes and he asks Jesus. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I think each of us, if we're honest, we might have had a similar thought. So like Peter, if you're a believer, you know that you should forgive others. And we know we should be gracious and forgive others even if they sin against us again. But sometimes we're tempted to think, surely there has to be an end to this, right? And Peter, like us, he knows this. He knows Jesus' teaching. He's walked with him. He's seen Jesus' example. He knows that as a follower of Jesus, that he should forgive others. I don't think he's being sarcastic. He's not saying to Jesus, oh, should I forgive someone seven times? He's not trying to avoid responsibility, but he's actually going beyond what most in that day would have thought was honoring to God. In the Jewish tradition, which Peter would have been very familiar with, the rabbis would have taught that you should forgive up to three times. So if the first time someone sins against you, you should forgive them. The second time, you should forgive them. The third time, you should forgive them. But on the fourth time, the responsibility was on them. You should dust off your feet and just move on without regret. So Peter would have grown up hearing these teachings. And so he might actually think he's going beyond what the religious people of that day would have done. They would have forgiven three times. He's saying, should we forgive seven times? The same can be true for forgiveness today. You'll hear people talk about forgiveness. They'll say that by forgiving someone over and over... By forgiving someone multiple times, that we're just enabling that. This would be a worldly perspective of forgiveness. That if we forgive someone many times, we're enabling their sin or their wrong behavior. We're just being taken advantage of, and we need to stand up for ourselves. But if there's anyone who can instruct us on this, anyone that we should look to, it's Jesus. That's why Peter was coming to Jesus. As one who had walked with Jesus, who had seen his ministry who had seen his grace and his forgiveness towards others, he knew that there was no one more forgiving. There was nobody who was more patient. Nobody who had been wronged repeatedly but continued to forgive more than Jesus. So we should look to Jesus as well. We shouldn't look to the world for our understanding of forgiveness, but we should look to Jesus and his instruction. We know, for those of us that have the Holy Spirit in us, we know that when others sin against us, our conscience tells us that we should forgive. That can be hard. We might not always listen to our conscience. 
We might be harboring bitterness in our hearts, hearts towards others. We may have seared our conscience by holding on to grudges. But I wonder if you've ever asked yourself these type of questions. Maybe Peter was thinking this as well. You might think, oh man, you know, my son or my daughter, I've been so patient with them, with my coworker or my neighbor. I've forgiven them three, four times. I've forgiven them for weeks. But they keep sinning against me. They, they just won't change. How many times should I forgive them? They're always rude to me. They're always unkind when I see them. They never come to visit me, even though I always go and visit them. How can I keep forgiving them? And here we see Jesus' example, and this is, this is convicting. But let's look in verse 22 and continue on. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Or as other versions, translations will put it, at seventy times seven times. So Jesus is saying, you shouldn't just forgive them three times, like the religious leaders were saying. You shouldn't just forgive them seven times, but seventy times seven. If you're good at math, some of you I know are engineers, you might be or mathematicians, you might be calculating in your head, but I don't think that's the point. Jesus isn't saying that we should forgive someone 490 times, or maybe 491. This is supposed to show that our forgiveness should be unending. So if we read this passage, if we're looking, oh man, you know, my brother sinned against me again, how many times do I have to forgive him? You're trying to calculate, do the math in your head, okay, I've got this many more times. I think you have a problem. We have a problem if we're doing this, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is the, the famous chapter on love, we read that true love, Christ-centered love, keeps no record of wrongs. We as humans should not keep a list of offenses against us. Because justice and vengeance and true ju- judgment can only come rightly from God. And God does keep an account. But we as believers should not pretend to exercise judgment on others. There's no purpose for us to keep an account of the number of times that we have been wronged. This shows us our dependence, our need to trust in God as the sovereign, sovereign ruler and ultimate judge. We cannot right the wrongs that were committed against us. We cannot settle the score. And so we should not keep a record of wrongs. But how can this be? How can we as Christians constantly forgive, even when we're sinned against by the same person, over and over, day after day after day. This can seem impossible, huh? We're so easily discouraged, so easily frustrated, but it's only through the Lord's help that we can forgive. So now I think Jesus recognizes this is a challenging teaching, a challenging instruction for the Apostle Peter. So he instructs Peter and the other disciples with a parable. This parable can be divided up into three sections. We're going to look at three main points to help us understand this responsibility of forgiveness that we have. So first, we'll see the compassion of the king. Second, the cruelty of his servant. And then third, responsibility of forgiveness. And if you know about parables, if you've read particularly the Gospels much, you know this is a common form of teaching that Jesus used to explain truths about the Christian life. These are stories. They were designed to illustrate and describe. One author said that parables, they make the things of God more plain and easy to those who are willing to be taught. 
and at the same time more difficult and obscure to those who are ignorant. It's not because parables are in some kind of secret code. We can read them clearly. We can read these verses now. But because those whose eyes have not been opened by the Holy Spirit, they're still blind to spiritual truth. So first we see in the parable that Jesus shares the compassion of the king. Let's read together, uh, beginning in verse 23. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This is kind of the setting of this parable. You see here a king, he's sitting down on his throne to settle accounts with his servants, those who are under him. This is some kind of regular settling of debts. This could have been a monthly thing where people would come to him, or an annual thing where each member of the kingdom would come before him and settle up what they owed to him, paying back the money that they had borrowed or what had been granted to them by the king. And look down at verse 24. It says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, payment to be made. So this king is seated on his throne. People are coming one after another. And this particular servant comes before him. And this servant owed 10,000 talents to the king. And if you know, if you've read about biblical measurements of money, you might know that this is an incredible amount of money. This is hundreds of millions of rand. For some perspective, just from scripture, when we read, there was the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings. She was one of the wealthiest queens that ever lived. And she came to visit King Solomon, who was one of the wealthiest men that ever lived. And she wanted to bring him a gift that showed recognition for how important he was and how the riches that she had, and she brought him 120 talents. That's some some perspective for you. This queen, one of these richest queens, coming to one of the richest men that ever lived, gave 120 talents. And this servant owed 10,000 talents. This servant, he could not hope to repay this massive debt. He could work for 100 lifetimes and never reach this amount. And again, remember, this is a parable. So Jesus is telling this story to his disciples, and we're reading it for a purpose. So what is this enormous debt supposed to symbolize? It's sin. The disciples knew this as they were listening to Jesus. They would have understood that this debt was supposed to reflect the sin that they committed, the debt of sin that they owed. That each one of us, we've accumulated a debt which we cannot repay. The debt of our sin is so massive, we can never repay on our own what we owe to the Lord. We know that even one sin against a holy God is enough to condemn a man to hell. And we've accumulated such a debt, such a massive quantity of sin, that none of us could ever hope to repay this debt on our own. In Psalm 40, verse 12, David, I think he recognized this debt, the overwhelming debt of his sin. Psalm 40, verse 12, it says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. David sees the quantity of his sin. He cannot number them. He's overwhelmed by the depth of his sin. And if we're honest, each one of us is in the same position. The debt of sin that we have accumulated is beyond what we can imagine. We can never hope 
to repay it. And each of us, like this servant, we're called to give account at some point in our lives. Each of us has an opportunity to recognize the magnitude of the debt that we have before God, the massive amount of sin that we have committed, and the infinite debt that we owe to Him. And we're called to settle the debt that we owe Him. If you're a believer here today, you had a time like this. Whether you heard the gospel presented or heard a sermon preached from this pulpit on a Sunday morning that showed you the depths of your sin. Maybe a friend spoke to you about the debt of sin that you owed and the hope of the gospel. And this time you saw the debt that you owed to God, the massive amount of debt that had piled up as a result of your sin. You have to settle your account. Maybe today is that day for you. Maybe today is the day when you must give an account to God. Maybe you've never truly recognized the magnitude of sin. Your sin, it's not neutral. Your sinful thoughts and words and actions, they have consequences. You've sinned not just against your brother or your neighbor or your friend, but your sin is against a perfect and holy God who not only created you but owns you and is perfectly just and righteous. Sin cannot stand before a holy God. It cannot be in his presence. And as you understand the magnitude of your sin, the debt that you owe, even today you have an opportunity to settle your account with God. And we know that there is an ultimate day when all will stand before God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Even if we have not recognized the debt that we owe in this life, everyone will have to give an account for their lives, the judgment seat of God. And we pray that we have the opportunity to see our sin before that time. In this parable, the king, being a righteous judge, he sentences the servant. Let's look in verse 25. It says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. This doesn't satisfy the debt. This 10,000 talents that was owed. This is all that he had. This is the best that could be done in the situation. This is pretty intense. Everything that this man had was taken away from him. Because he owes more than he could ever repay. He sold into slavery. He and his wife and his children sold to repay as much of the debt as possible. And this punishment reflects the punishment of sinners in hell. As fallen human beings that are made in the image of God, made for his glory, but as those who have sinned, taken this gift of God and stolen the glory that he deserves by not worshiping him as he deserves we can never repay the debt that our sin has produced. And every sinner who suffers in hell for eternity, they cannot truly repay the debt that they owe. They can never give God back the glory which they have taken from Him. It's the same for the servant. Even though all that he has is taken from him, the rest of his life is taken away from him. He'll never repay this debt that he owes to the king. But it's righteous and it's just in this situation. And then we see this incredible scene in verse 26. It says, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. The servant's overwhelmed. He falls down on his face. There's nothing else he can do in this moment. He knows the sentence is what he deserves, so he pleads with the king to let him try to do better. Let him try to pay it back. Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. 
king knows he can't pay him back. Uh, he doesn't have 10,000 talents. He will never have 10,000 talents. I think this attitude reflects many of us. When we first hear the gospel, when we first see the magnitude of our sin, we're overwhelmed by the debt of sin that we owe and the love of God. We know that we can never repay it back, but our first instinct, it's often to fall on our face before the Lord, plead with God to let us try to pay it back. We try to do better, right? Many of us, when we see our sin, that's our first instinct. We'll try to please you. We'll try to live our lives for your glory. But the Lord knows that this isn't possible. This king knows that this is impossible. He knows we cannot do better on our own. But what incredible forgiveness is offered Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is a debt that could have never been paid by the servant. Forgiveness could only be offered by the king. No one else could forgive this debt. The debt wasn't owed to anyone else, only to this king. No one else could have released him from this sentence of slavery. No one else could have given him back what what would have been taken from him. No one else could have forgiven him his debt. And if you're a believer here today, this is what God has done for you. He has shown you mercy. Your debt has been forgiven. Your account has been settled. And you are free. His mercy is unmatched. His love and kindness is unparalleled. It's only the sovereign Lord, only the creator of the universe who can truly pardon sinners. It's only he that can forgive our sin, only he that can cancel the debt that we owe to him. What amazing love we have been shown. That the king of the universe would cancel out this unimaginable debt of sin that we owe to him. We have been shown incredible mercy and amazing grace. But God isn't blind to our sin. You know, some people might think that God just ignores our sin. But that's what makes his forgiveness so incredible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you, Pretoria West Bible Church. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. Your debt has been forgiven. You were pardoned by the king, shown mercy that you did not deserve. Your debt was canceled and your sin has been paid for. And you have been set free. What amazing kindness that God has shown to us. And this compassion, this forgiveness, this graciousness, it's part of God's very character, part of his nature. In Exodus chapter 34, you might remember Moses is on Mount Sinai, and we see the Lord pass before him. Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. As the Lord is describing himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, this is part of his very nature, part of his very character. He says he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's true for us today. 
So now the story, this parable, it turns from this beautiful scene of mercy, of forgiveness, and this debt being canceled, of account being settled, forgiveness being offered, from the compassion of the king to the cruelty of the servant. Let's pick up in this parable. Let's keep reading from verse 28. It says, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. This is really shocking, huh? When you read this. And I think Jesus intended it to be this way for his disciples. This servant, who has been shown unimaginable kindness, forgiven this unimaginable debt, hundreds and hundreds of millions of rand, he goes directly out of the presence of the king, directly from having this forgiveness being offered to him, settling his account, and goes straight to this other guy who owes him this smaller amount of money. And it's a small amount, but it's about, a denarii was about a day's wage, so the servant owes him about four months' pay, which is quite a large amount of money, but it's nowhere near to the debt that he has just been forgiven. But the servant is completely blinded to this. He goes straight to the servant that owes him a hundred denarii. Notice how intense it is. He doesn't even talk to him, he doesn't explain the situation, he doesn't tell him about this debt that has just been forgiven. He just walks up to this guy and grabs him by the throat and starts choking him. Wow. And while he has him around the throat, he demands that he pay him back. It's so extreme, right? It's so harsh, so ungracious, so unloving. You, know, you might say, how can this guy do this? He's just been forgiven. Can he not be more patient with his friend? But this is exactly what we do when we don't forgive others. When we as believers who have been forgiven by God, this unimaginable sin, this unimaginable debt that we owed to the king, when we're ungracious with others, we are exactly like this servant. If the Lord has given us grace, opened our eyes to see the mountain of sin that we had accumulated against God, this debt that we could never pay, and then we've been offered such incredible mercy and forgiveness by God, and then we turn around and we find someone who's annoying to us, someone who says something unkind, and we lash out at them, we're ungracious, unmerciful. We are just like this servant, grabbing his friend by the throat and demanding to be repaid. When we harbor bitterness in our heart towards a brother or sister in Christ, refusing to forgive, holding on to that sin, that offense, when we speak harshly towards others, we're ungracious towards someone at work, we hold a grudge against someone. This is exactly what the servant is doing. It's such a tragedy. And in this story, you can see how sad it is. It doesn't make sense. It's so terrible when we refuse to forgive others when we've been forgiven so much. So this servant, he grabs this guy by the throat, starts choking him, demanding to be repaid. And then in verse 29, you see, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And you can see this servant is doing exactly what the other servant had asked of the king. He falls down on his face. He pleads for mercy. But the response is completely opposite. There's no forgiveness. There's no mercy. There's no grace. And he's completely blinded to his hypocrisy 
doesn't see it. You can see there, it doesn't say he recognized his error, recognized how hypocritical he was, but others noticed. Verse 31 continues on. It says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. These other servants, they were shocked by their friend's behavior. They might have been in the room when the king had pardoned their friend. They were his fellow servants, and now they see the same man going from the presence of the king to their, other, this, their fellow servant, and reacting so harshly and violently, so ungraciously. Someone who received such incredible mercy, demonstrating such cruelty and harshness towards others. And sadly, I think this is true of us as well. We're often blinded to our own sin. But others can see it, often more easily than we can. Charles Spurgeon, talking about this verse, he said about this servant, he said, others could see the evil of his conduct, even if he could not. Sometimes we are so painfully, into our own embarrassment, blind to our own sinful, fleshly conduct. Our sin, it can be so blatant, so evident to everyone around us, but the ugliness of our own hearts, we fail to acknowledge even the most obvious of sins. I know I can be guilty of that as well. Oftentimes, you know, there might be conversations with my wife where she will patiently and lovingly and gently point out something harsh that I've said, a tone maybe that I use with our kids, a time when I was rude. And my instinct, my sinful instinct, at times is not to apologize, but to defend or to deflect or to even accuse her. Such a temptation, such a sinful tendency in our own hearts to avoid accountability for our actions. So often we're blind to our own sin. And this is ugly when we see it in our own hearts. So did this other servant, did he owe him money? Yes. It's not the question. He was not unjust, completely unjust in asking to be repaid, but definitely ungracious. He was failing to see the incredible grace and forgiveness that he had been shown. So first we saw in the story the compassion of the king. Second, the cruelty of his servant. Now finally, we see the responsibility of forgiveness. Let's look verse 32. It says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here in this final section, and especially in verse 35, we see more application of the principles of forgiveness taught in this parable. In a way, all of a parable is intended to be application, but here Jesus is specifically highlighting the responsibility that we as believers have to forgive. Because there is a tendency in our own hearts, a sinful tendency to withhold forgiveness from others. Sometimes we can excuse it. We can make excuses for ourselves by saying, well, you know, I shouldn't have to forgive them if they didn't ask for forgiveness. If they didn't confess their sin in the way that I wanted them to. Or like Peter, we might want to assume that there's a limit to our forgiveness. Maybe three times, and then, yeah, four times, I don't know if I can forgive. Or seven times, I don't know about eight times. Or 490 times, I don't know about 491. Remember, God alone is judge. 
He alone is the one who knows the heart of man. We should never put our self in the place of God. This is what the king is saying to his servant in this parable. This is so wicked, he's saying. saying, I forgave you this massive debt and showed mercy to you, but you won't even forgive your fellow servant. Because of the magnitude of forgiveness that has been shown, it makes it that much worse when the servant is harsh in return. When we who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, the guilt of our sins has been removed. When we've been declared righteous because of God's sacrificial love for us, when we in turn fail to forgive others, we are spitting in the face of God who loved us and gave his son on our behalf. We're spitting in the face of the king. We're throwing his kindness back in his face. Luke uh, chapter 7, you might remember the story of the woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and washed his feet with her hair. You remember the disciples, they were shocked by this. It seemed wasteful to them, and they were confused. They were blind in many ways like we are. And when they asked Jesus about it, he told them another parable about two men who were forgiven a debt. The one man was forgiven a larger amount, and the other man a much smaller amount. And he asked the disciples, which one do you think is more grateful? And they rightly recognized, they rightly said, the man who is forgiven more should be more grateful. In Luke 7, 47, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. This woman who is washing Jesus' feet, with her hair, anointing his feet with perfume, her gratitude for the Lord's forgiveness was great because she had been forgiven much. She loved because he first loved her. And it should be the same for each one of us. If we see the massive debt of sin that we have accumulated that has been forgiven, we should be overflowing with gratitude and forgiveness towards the king. And we should be so gracious and loving towards others. <coughs> And here in this passage, the king's condemnation of his servant was swift. It was direct. The master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. This is not a a sinful anger, but a righteous anger. As we have said, God alone is the perfect judge. He alone is righteous. He alone can be perfectly just. In James 2.13, it says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And this servant received the punishment for his wickedness. How could someone receive mercy who refuses to show mercy himself? This last verse, verse 35, where it says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't think this is saying, this parable, it's not saying that if we fail to forgive someone that we in turn are condemned to hell for it. We know that we fall short in many ways. But Jesus is instructing the disciples, and I think it's instructive to us as well, that a lack of forgiveness or a pattern of unforgiveness in someone's life is evidence of a heart that has not truly been transformed by the gospel. We should see this as a warning for us as believers as well. Even if our hearts are not hardened like the servant, we know that the Lord chastises those he loves. There are still consequences for sin. We should fight against bitterness and pride in our hearts that would keep us from forgiving others. Not out of guilt for what we've done, but out of gratitude for what the Lord has already done for us. That's why we need to constantly instruct our own hearts and speak the gospel to one another, to remind each other of the debt 
we have been forgiven. There's so much more uh, we could say about forgiveness, even from this passage. Um, but as I spent time looking at this passage and studying recently, I knew this is what I wanted us to look at today. Primarily, though, from the parable we looked at together, this parable, the basis of our forgiveness has to be the forgiveness that we have been shown by God. We cannot hope to forgive others just by the strength of our own will or our own self-righteousness, but we love because He first loved us. And one of the most clear ways that we as believers reflect the love of the Father towards others is through forgiveness. This should be characteristic of us as believers, of us as a church family, or you all as a church family at Pretoria West Bible Church. This is a beautiful picture and reflection of the gospel when we forgive others. You remember that man, Jacob, that we talked about at the beginning? He understood this. He had seen how huge his debt of sin was towards God. He knew what he had been forgiven, what grace had been shown to him. This was a man whose heart had been shaped by forgiveness. And only because he knew the forgiveness that God had given to him, this is how he was able to show forgiveness towards the same men who had beaten him and persecuted him, who had spit on him and jailed him for these many years, who had tortured and beat him. And the same can be true for us as believers today. If we recognize how great our debt is before God, how great the pardon is that we have received by the blood of Christ, then we as Christians, we should be the most forgiving of people. Whether it's to forgive the same offense over and over and over again without losing patience, or if it's forgiving truly evil and wicked sins that are committed against us, the church and we as believers should be the most gracious, the most forgiving, and the most merciful. We love because he first loved us. By the power of the gospel, the reconciliation that we have received through Christ because our account has been settled. The love that we have been shown by the Father who sacrificed his Son on our behalf and by the help of his Spirit, as our counselor and our comforter, we can truly forgive. Amen? All right, let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we're thankful for passages like this that make things so clear and so plain. But we recognize it's not easy to forgive. God, we know our sin, that our sins are ever before us. We see the debt of sin that we owed. God, your forgiveness, the mercy that you have offered to us is so incredible. You didn't forgive us. You didn't settle our debt. You haven't granted us mercy because we came to you in humility. But you loved us. You sent your son to die for us when we were rebels. Those who hated you, who were running against you, who were your enemies. Help us to see the mercy that we have been shown. Help it to fill our hearts, fill our minds as we meditate on the gospel, as we open your word day by day. Help us to marvel at the grace that we have been shown. And your forgiveness is so precious. Create a tenderness in our own hearts. God, help us to be patient with others when they sin against us in the same way, day after day after day. Help us to be patient. Not by our own strength, but by looking to you, by reminding our own hearts of truth, the grace that we have received. Help us to be quick to forgive, not slow, not holding things over others' heads, but help us to be quick to forgive as those who have been forgiven much. Help us to be gentle and loving and compassionate towards others. 
God, I pray through the church family here at Pretoria West Bible Church. I pray that they will be a church that is marked by forgiveness and grace. That as they day by day forgive one another, are gracious towards each other, are patient and gentle and loving and kind towards each other and towards others, that they would be a beautiful picture of the gospel. That they would be a light, a light set on a hill here in Pretoria West. And their forgiveness, the mercy that they show towards others, towards their family, towards their friends, their neighbors, their coworkers, would be so unnatural, so incredible, so remarkable, that it would cause people to come and ask, how can you forgive like this? How can you offer grace in this way when you've been sinned against in this way? I pray that they would be ready to speak, ready to open their mouths, to share the mercy that they have been shown by Christ. We're thankful for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Jesus' name.